So last week I started a sermon series that I have entitled Christmas Christology. Uh, This uh, Christmas season I am preaching about Christ, I'm preaching about Jesus, and last week I kicked off of uh, this series. So last week we had part one, and today we have part two of Christmas Christology. In this study I'm taking the church deep into the pages of scripture and the testimony of the church to talk about the awe-inspiring gift that is Jesus, and we'll be unpacking in this series who exactly he is. That said, there are different ways for preachers to preach. Uh, Our our default form of preaching is what we call expositional preaching, where, uh, you know, I might say, open your Bibles and go to whatever, the the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, and then we just move from verse 1 to verse 2 to verse 3 to verse 4, and wherever we left off on on a given Sunday, then we pick back up and we preach our way through the text. That's what we call exposition. There is another way to preach, which is topical, where you might say, what does the Bible say about friendship or leadership or marriage or something like this? You can also preach thematically, where you look at the redemptive themes that are woven into the storyline of the Bible itself. And uh, another way that you can preach is systematic theological preaching where you're taking uh, God's people through an item of systematic theology, where you're looking at God, or you're looking at salvation, or maybe you're looking at angelology, the study of angels. And so in this sermon series, I'm doing this latter form of preaching. It's a systematic theological kind of preaching, where I'm taking us into the, the study of Christ. The title of my message today is Holy Man, Holy God. And so by way of introduction, I want to get us into the text. And though this is systematic, I will be expositing every text that we turn to. And can I get you, by way of introduction, to go in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And by way of introduction, let's reflect on what it is that we're doing in this series. We're doing Christology. Christology is hopefully what it sounds like. Ology, the study of Christ. This is the study of Christ. And we are going to be exploring Christology this month because inevitably in the month of December, our culture is filled with fake news about Jesus. Uh, Inevitably, you know, when Easter rolls around, uh, as we get into spring, April hits, news is filled with fake news about Jesus and Easter and it's copied from pagans and this and that and Jesus didn't really rise and yada, yada, yada. And then Christmas rolls around and the same thing happens, you know, there's... YouTube clips and TikTok and whatnot, and you know, there's and it spreads through social media, and so you see it in your Facebook and online feeds and whatever. All this fake news about Jesus spreading and going viral. It's like I don't know, the Rona and monkeypox had a baby and uh, gave it a bottle of Red Bull, and it's just out there, and you're like, how do I counter this? And so, I want to equip you to be able to engage people with history with theology, to be able to understand in your own personal life even more deeply who Christ is. Uh, uh, You know, when you become a Christian, you don't know everything that there is to know about the Christ uh, that is Christianity. And so it is important for us to have times where we are able to preach systematic theology to you. Without further ado, 1 John chapter 4, draw your eyes at verse 1. He writes, Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Uh, John is writing from the first century in this letter, and he is noting 
what I noted a moment ago with regard to what spreads and goes viral in our culture, namely false messages about Christ. John is concerned specifically that his readers are being impacted by the delusions of false prophets. As a pastor, I have the same concern for the church. Sincere Christians can get sucked into invented versions of Jesus. Um, so, some of them birthed in the minds of preachers trying to make Jesus more palatable to pop culture. Uh, I, I, don't want, I don't want in my own life a Jesus that is birthed by man's imagination. I want the Jesus who was born in the manger in Bethlehem, who is God the Son in the flesh. And I, I want to understand what that means, that he is both God and man. And so that's what this series of Christology is doing. There are a lot of topics in Christology that we can talk about. We can, we can talk about atonement. We can talk about resurrection. We can talk about uh, you know, his works and miracles and so on and so forth. But the four things that we're tackling are the key things that are critical for the celebration of Christ, namely the full deity of Jesus. Secondly, the full humanity of Jesus. How is he fully divine and fully human and yet one person? That gets us into this third point, the hypostatic union of Jesus. And then fourthly, the virgin conception and birth of Jesus. I shared with you last week two basic presuppositions and methods that I'm using in terms of offering you this systematic theological sermon series. And so you see on your outline here, by way of introduction, some presuppositions for Christology. Number one, the Bible is the original source material for proper research and scientific in investigation as it relates to Christ. Uh, if you want to know someone, you talk to the people who knew him. You talk to the people who were eyewitnesses. You talk to the people who were there. And so it makes sense that we would turn to the pages of Scripture where we find the testimony of those who were close to Jesus, who walked with him, who were taught personally by him. Furthermore, the Bible has stood the test of time. It is a compilation of historical documents that have been backed by the best archaeological evidence that is, that is available. It, it stands up to science, to archaeology, to history. Many of the documents that we have inside of the scripture are written by uh, people who are eyewitnesses of the events, and so it's, it's, it's a helpful thing to turn to, primary sources. Secondly, uh, a second presupposition, the historical doctrine of the Trinity, the triunity of God, is our biblical paradigm for Christological inquiry. I spoke with you last week about this, and I need to reiterate it today by way of introduction, lest there are those who missed last week's message. And really, in any message on any given Sunday, you're going to hear us harp on the triunity of God. It's what sets us apart from all other religions, that we believe there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. So the presuppositions, the Bible's the original source. Secondly, we get into the triunity of God. And there are uh, four main points for us as we continue building on our Christology this morning. Number one, there is one and only one true and living God. Uh, this is monotheism. We're not polytheists. We believe that there is only one God. Uh, second, this one God eternally exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These are persons, not modes or titles. You know, you could say, uh, oh, Matt, he's a pastor, he's a father, he's a husband, uh, three in one. No, that's not what we're talking about. Those are just different titles that are associated with, with myself. You have different titles, but you're not different persons. Uh, God, however, has three distinct persons in him. The three persons are completely equal in their attributes, uh, which is to say they share the same divine nature. 
And while each person is fully and completely God, fourthly, the persons are not identical. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, and yet the Son is God, and the Father is God, and the Spirit is God. You say, how, how, how does this work? It, it works because there's one being who eternally dwells in three persons. A being is what a thing is. Uh, you know, this, this right here is a pulpit, right? If I said, what is this? You'd say, a pulpit. If I pointed at the chair there and said, what is that? You say, you say chair, right? If I pointed at, at my son, who's not paying attention right now, and I said, who, who's, what is that? You say, that is a human right there. Uh, the pastor's kid in the front row always gets picked on. You say, what is that? That is a human. Now, if I said, who is that? You'd say, well, that's, that's Elijah Jones, right? There's a difference between a what and a who. If I said, who is, who is this? Who's this pulpit right here? You go, well, there's no who in that what. So some whats have whos, like Elijah. Some whats don't have whos, like the pulpit. Uh, you all happen to be a what, a human what, and you all happen to be a who. You're one what and one who. Well, God happens to be one what and three whos. Whos and whats are different kinds of things, and so God himself has three whos, Father, Son, and Spirit in the one what. It would be illogical if we said God is three who's and one who, or three what's and one what, because you can't be three what's and one what. You can't have one pulpit and three pulpits at the same time, any more than you can have a two-horned unicorn, right? You can't have a two-horned unicorn because by definition it has one horn, right? That would be illogical. But to be one what and three who's is not a problem. Now, admittedly, uh, the doctrine of the triunity of God can be difficult initially when you're studying to comprehend. St. Augustine in the 300s was puzzling over the doctrine of the Trinity, and the story is told that he is said to have been walking on a beach one day as he was pondering the doctrine of the, tri the triunity of God, and he observed a young boy at the beach, and the boy at the beach had dug a hole and he had, in the sand, and he had a bucket, and he was going over to the water, and he was getting water from the ocean, and then he was coming over to the hole, and he's, he's pouring it from his bucket into this hole. And Augustine watched him for a while, and he said, what are you doing, young boy? And the boy replied, I'm trying to put the ocean into this hole. And Augustine realized at that moment that that was what it felt like for him to put the infinite God into our finite minds. And so as we study God, there are going to be those moments where you're like, oh, you know, I'm lost or this is over my head or whatever, as it should be. We're, we're talking about God. We're, we're not talking about, you know, some figure of, of history. We're talking about God of eternity. Uh, if, if God is infinite and we are finite, we will never be able to put all of him in this hole in our head with our buckets. The fullness of what he is will exceed our power to grasp him. We're talking about God. And yet that said, while we cannot exhaustively grasp all that there is to know about God, there is much that we can know and understand about God because God has revealed himself to his people. He has given himself his, his, his word. He's given us his word that reveals himself to us and his word was written that we would understand it. You have 1 John chapter 4 in front of you. Look at verse 8 in the text. And in verse 8 of 1 John 4, we read about knowing God. By this we know, right? John believes that we can know God. In fact, he writes in this, in this verse, look at verse 8, we are from God, he who knows God's 
listens to us, and he who is not from God does not listen to this, but this we know the spirit of truth, the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for this love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God. But the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Um, he talks about knowing God. He talks, a, 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 you know, propositional truth about God. In this case, in verse 8, he talks about God being love. And, and here we see something that is central to our understanding of the triunity of God. God is love because he eternally dwells in three persons. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit loves the Father. The, the Father loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Son. You have this communion in God that is absolute love. If God were one person, this verse would be rendered meaningless. How, does one how, how is one love if you are just one person? In God, there are three persons in ultimate love. Now, with the triunity of God in mind, we move to talk about the historical Jesus of Nazareth because the historical Jesus of Nazareth is this person here. He, he existed before he was born. He's always existed. What we celebrate in Christmas is that this eternal person, who is one with the Father and the Spirit, became a man. And that brings us to four essential Christological affirmations that we're exploring in this series. And the first is that Jesus is fully and completely divine. We explored this last week. So if you missed the sermon last week, I'm just presupposing this morning that Jesus is fully God. And I spent an hour, you know, showing you texts and engaging it to say, hey, look, Jesus is God. And this morning, what we're going to get into is how he's fully and completely human as well. And then next Sunday, I'll get into how the divine and human natures of Jesus, how, how they are united together in one person and yet distinct. Um, which is to say, you know, God didn't mix a little deity sauce with a little humanity sauce and make, you know, uh, uh, the McDonald's sauce for the Big Mac or whatever, right? He, wasn't, he didn't make a cocktail. You, ha you actually have an individual person, the Son, who is fully God and fully man. So we'll talk about how that works and what Scripture and the creeds of the church say about this. And then D, in our celebration on uh, Christmas Eve, I will unpack how Jesus was born and conceived of a virgin by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. All four of these points are essentials for our celebration of Christmas, and more importantly, for our worship of Christ. Uh, it, it, it's, it's really important to get these down. If you don't get these down, you, you're, you're going to misunderstand who Christ is. It, it's like a happy meal without, you know, a fries and a toy, right? You're not going to be a happy boy with a happy meal with no toy in it. Any picture of Jesus that does not offer these four essentials is missing something from the meal. So again, I encourage you, if you missed last week, uh, go online, check out that sermon. And today we're moving into the second point, the full humanity of Jesus. You know, most people don't have a problem with the humanity of Jesus. Uh, more so like the cults of, of the world, they have a problem with the deity of Jesus. They deny his deity. They reduce him to a mere mortal or a lowercase g god or something like that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, most folks don't have a problem with the humanity of Jesus. It seems unthreatening to people. People, especially Christians, would readily admit that Jesus was a historical human who lived 2,000 years ago. For the non-religious skeptical, the deity of Jesus is really the issue in the cults, as I said a moment ago. For the religious or the spiritual types, uh, the humanity of Jesus can nonetheless become an issue. For many reasons, religious types have been known to minimize the humanity of Jesus. Uh, it's like, no, no, he's God, and you start talking about his, his human nature, and they've never quite thought about it. They're raised in religion and haven't thought deeply about the significance of the humanity of Christ. 
They want God Jesus, but not human Jesus. And in biblical times, this was true. There was a group of people that were running around at the time that John was writing, which is why I began with John intentionally. And John is correcting something that would later become known as what's called Gnosticism. Gnosis is the word for knowledge, this kind of secret knowledge about God. There was another group known as the Docetists, from the Greek word dokeo, which means to appear. And they would say that, 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 that Jesus wasn't really human. He just kind of appeared to, to be a human, the docetists. They taught a way of salvation by having an esoteric knowledge of, of Christ. They believed that physical matter itself was bad, and so salvation involved escape, escaping from matter. And, and so they sought to disembody and dehumanize Jesus. They had a low view of the body, uh, they had a low view of morals as well. I won't get into ancient docetism, but it was a proto version of it was alive at the time of John. So draw your eyes back at the text and let's see John engaging the, docet the docetic ideas of his day, the proto-gnostics. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and is now already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Amen? Isn't that a wonderful message? That God is greater than the things of this world? As John is discouraged and and, and seeking to equip the church to, to, you know, to, to equip them so that they can you know, be able to stand against the culture that's saying you know, all this fake news about Jesus in his day. He then moves to encourage the saints, look how greater he is. Uh, those of you who are in Christ, you know this. Christ comes into your life and your life will look radically different. He, can, he, can, he has power over all things. Uh, people in this room know and you can testify of being in places of darkness, crippling despair, addiction, and where you feel like you have no control and then Christ comes into your life, turns the light on, saves you, and things look radically different. Look at the biblical testimony that is before us. Look at his power. Look at jo hear John's heart. He's like, hey, watch out for the fake Jesuses that are out there. Listen, John says, look, he's, he's human. And, and if they don't confess that he's in the flesh, he says, then that's, that's some different kind of a Jesus. That, that's not the real thing. That's a knockoff, right? That's a Rolex with three L's in it. It's not, a re, it's not real. It's a knockoff. It's a bootleg. Would you move from 1 John chapter 4 over to the Gospel of Matthew and find your way to the opening chapter of the Gospel of Matthew? And while you're turning there, Let's move through the points on your outline. You have a very detailed outline this morning, as you did last week. And I'm giving you a detailed outline because I hope that you'll tuck it in your Bibles. And this will be something that you make a, a, a part of your library and study and use it as you engage people. We know Jesus is human. Let's move through reasons why. A, Jesus is called by human names inside of the Bible. I ask you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew because it begins with human genealogies. It traces the ancestry of the historic Jesus. This genealogy is found specifically in verses 1 through 17 in Matthew 1. Matthew writes in the first century. He's an eyewitness of the historic Jesus. He writes uh, from a Jewish perspective to a Jewish audience. And so he emphasizes in this human genealogy how Jesus is the fulfillment of Hebrew prophecy. 
The genealogy serves to show that Jesus is also the descendant, the literal descendant in the flesh of the historic King David, fulfilling the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament uh, that were given to David, that were given uh, to us through the prophets. So you see under A, Jesus is called by human names in the Bible. A1, he is called the son of David, the son of David. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, look at it. It says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's called the son of David. He's called the son of Abraham, two historical figures. Jesus is the descendant of historical humans. To descend from a human means that you are what? Human, right? Because humans make humans. Horses make horses. Dogs make dogs, right? You get the idea. Like, that, that, that's what it is to be a member of a species. The species creates after its kind. Uh, so it's clear then that he is human. Secondly, under point A, he is called Jesus. He's called Jesus, which is the equivalent of the Old Testament name, Joshua or Yeshua. It's a regular human name. The name Jesus holds great significance, both linguistically and theologically. In the context of Christianity, the name Jesus is anglicized from a Greek name, Iesus, which is itself a Hellenized form of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Yehoshua, Yahweh's salvation, it means. The name encapsulates the mission and the purpose of Jesus. It signifies that Jesus is the embodiment of God's salvation for humanity. It's, it's this reality that Jesus came to save people from their sins and to reconcile us to God. And there's not a person in this room who doesn't need salvation. Uh, in fact, the fact of the matter is that we're born into this world with sin. Our, our, the, first, the first humans of this species declared war on God. They pressed the red button and humanity's been at odd with God. And we enter into the world on the wrong side of the conflict in rebellion against God. And God is just. Unlike human judges that can be corrupted and bribed, you cannot corrupt or bribe God. He will serve his justice on all who sin. That's scary and bad news because all of us sin. Uh, this is quite unique in terms of our faith because we're not a religion that is looking down on anyone because we're included in it. We're all sinners and God punishes sin. So that's the bad news. But here's the good news. God is merciful. God is gracious. God will forgive you. God has come to save you. God has come to give you what you don't deserve. If you would run to him and cry out to him, you will know Yeshua. You will know that God saves his salvation is, is, is in this human name un, unpacked for us. And we see Matthew's genealogy emphasizing Jesus as the legal heir to the throne of David, presenting him as the long-awaited Messiah and the King of, of, of Israel and the Savior of the nations. Uh, Matthew's uh, genealogy here sets, uh, has, has three sets of 14 generations highlighting the key figures in Israel's history. We don't have time to, but if you turn to Luke's genealogy, you would also see again this, this point of a human name and a human line. And Luke, uh, when he traces Jesus's ancestry, he moves through Mary, emphasizing his connection to humanity. Luke's gospel has more of a focus on the universal saving work of Christ for all the nations. And so he traces it all the way back to Adam. Matthew traces it to Abram and to David. Jesus through the Jewish people, Jesus for the Gentiles, Jesus the Savior of all who call on him. So moving down the outline, he's called the son of David, he's called Jesus. Thirdly, he is called a man repeatedly inside of scripture. 
Um, it, you, you see it time after time. You have references here on your outline. We won't turn to them, but Acts 17, 1 Timothy 2, Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. He's called a man. He also calls himself a man in John 8, verse 40. Jesus speaking to the pundits, speaking to the fake news. He said, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. He calls himself a man. Others call him a man. And so we see very clearly in the text of Scripture, our source document for scientific inquiry of who Christ is, he has called human names inside of Scripture. Um, we see B, moving down the outline, that Jesus had a human birth and a human genealogy. If your mom is human, it follows you are human. If you have a human genealogy, it follows that you are human. Look at Matthew 1 in front of you. You see the names. These are historical people. Uh, the point is, he had a family tree of humans, and so he is a human. I remember the cartoon cat Garfield, you remember Garfield, uh, who's said to have come from a long line of bad cats, which means that he's a cat, right? So he has a cat genealogy. Christ has a human genealogy, hence he is human. In the historical accounts of the Bible, we see he had a mom and a stepdad. Uh, for those of you who grew up in broken homes with divorce, I, I you know, was a kid, my parents got divorced, had step-parents and stuff like this. Uh, I always thought this was incredible in terms of, you know, it's like you, you know, mix families and you have your tension and whatever. You're not my dad, you know, you're not my mom and all, all the drama that goes with that. You're like, wow, Jesus had a stepdad. Like he, he knows what it is to enter into a world that is complex and, 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 have, and have the very things that we've been marked by and hurt by. He has entered into and he can sympathize with you in anything that you are going through. Even people who don't know much about the Bible know that Jesus' mom was a human named Mary. She was engaged to a dude named Joseph. In that culture, you didn't dare mess around before marriage. It wasn't just socially unacceptable. It was also a crime to have sex outside of marriage. And so Mary was engaged to Joseph, and they weren't sexually active. They hadn't consummated that. And then her whole engagement is interrupted by an angel who tells her that she is having a baby. Draw your eyes at verse 18 in the text. The birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Jesus before they came together, she was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call him Yeshua, Jesus, for he will save people from, from their sins. And now this took place to fulfill what was spoken of the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with a child and shall bear a name, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then Joseph awoke. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Jesus, Yeshua. So we see he has a mom. We see he has a stepdad. We see, secondly, that he has brothers and sisters. Notice that verse 25 says that he kept her a virgin until she gave birth. Uh, the word until means afterwards. So Joseph, you know, had to make up for lost time. Uh, you know, things were kind of interrupted from him. I'm sure that's not how he thought, uh, you know, dreaming of getting married one day, how that was going to work out. So it, Jesus has siblings. Uh, when his ministry was underway, he went to his hometown of Nazareth, and people came to hear him preach. If you turn over to Matthew from chapter 1 over to chapter 13, 
In Matthew 13, verse 55, the crowds say what in Matthew 13, 55? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his, his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Uh, and his sisters, are, are they not all with us? He's got siblings. He's got brothers. Uh, you know, there's a, a funny Christian comedian who makes jokes about, imagine being, you know, one of Jesus's brothers. You know, you're just always like, why can't you be more like Jesus? You know, uh, you, you know why, why can't you be more like your big brother? Right? So he's got siblings, uh, which again, this stands the reason that he's human. He has brothers and sisters. Thirdly, he had a typical upbringing, family, neighborhood, etc., uh, here you see the neighborhood of Jesus in Matthew 13. They come out. He's a neighborhood guy. He works with his stepdad as a carpenter. Uh, incidentally, carpenters at that time and in that specific area were stonemasons. They, they built things out of stone. They chisel and what have you. So you can imagine Jesus with some Popeye forearms, you know, working with his hand. Like, he's a tough guy. He lifts heavy stuff. He's a blue-collar guy. He, you know, he's, he's a man's man. Jesus has human descendants, a human nature. He is called a man by others. He's called a man by himself. He has a human birth, a human genealogy, human siblings, human upbringing. He's looking quite like a human uh, uh, <laughs> as we get into these texts. Now let's put on our medical and metaphysical goggles and see how human he is. Uh, point C, uh, Jesus had a full human makeup of a corporeal body and an incorporeal soul. And for point C, I want to take you to the Gospel of Luke. So if you would turn to Luke chapter 24. In a moment, I have a verse I want to show you. So putting on our medical goggles as Jesus' physical and corporeal body are in consideration. Jesus is God the Son. Same person, right? He existed before he was born, right? Because he's God the Son and God the Son always existed. Uh, so he's always existed. The person, God the Son. Uh, God is immaterial. He's not made up of physical stuff like the universe. The universe, unlike God, had a beginning. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning, so the universe had a cause. The universe came into existence. It's matter. But God himself is immaterial. Most religions acknowledge that God is an invisible, immaterial being, and yet Jesus is very clearly material. He's human. You can touch him. Now, now, I said we're going to put on our medical goggles, but also our metaphysical goggles. Be, be, and I say metaphysical and medical because humans are both material and immaterial. We're made up of physical stuff and we're made up of non-physical stuff. Uh, the technical term for this is what we call substance dualism. Humans are made up of two substances, something physical and something non-physical. And, and you all know this, right? You, you know the difference between having a pain in your knee or your back as opposed to having a pain because someone rejected you, right? You, you know how you can have pain in your mind and in your emotions, which aren't spatially located in your body anywhere. That's drastically different than, say, a pain from, from a cut. I've got a Band-Aid on my thumb because uh, last night I accidentally missed some food while I was cutting, and it, it, it hurts, right? But the pain that's here is different from the pain of you know, your, your parents telling you you're, they're getting divorced or a spouse saying, I don't want to be with you anymore or a friend abandoning you. Those are different kinds of things because we are made up of different kinds of things. We are bodies and souls. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read about how God created humankind and it says that the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being or soul, Genesis 2, 7. 
So it's quite clear that humanity is made up of physical stuff that then God breathes life into and becomes soul. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able both to destroy the soul and the body in hell. The implication is clear. Man is made up of material stuff, and man is made up of immaterial stuff. This is why when you die, you can still exist because you are a soul. You are the person of your soul, which is immaterial. And so there's existence outside of the body. There is an afterlife. The implication is clearer then from the text. You have soul and you have body, a soul that can survive death. Man is physical and non-physical in one being, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And again, we're reminded there in the text of something that I mentioned earlier, that humanity is at odds with God that we've rebelled against him and we face judgment. And so Jesus says in Matthew 10, like, hey, you, you shouldn't fear mortal men who can only kill your body and can't do anything to your soul. Don't, don't fear them. Fear God, because God stands over your souls. And, and again, that's bad news. That's scary news. But the good news is that you can come to God. And while his justice would require you to be punished for what you have done, his mercy has provided a sacrifice so that he can be just and forgive you because someone else has paid your debt. And that's who we're talking about, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is like you and I. He has a corporeal body. Luke, I ask you to turn to verse uh, 37 of chapter 24, Luke 24, 37. They startled. They were startled and frightened. This is after Jesus is risen from the dead. They're startled and frightened. They see him. They thought they were seeing a spirit, Luke 24, 37 says. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, see my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed him his, his hands and his feet. And while they could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. Jesus is eating. He has a digestive system. He's being touched. This isn't a mirage. This isn't a ghost. This isn't an apparition. This isn't a psychological projection. I saw Tupac at Fox Hills. No, you didn't. Uh, you know, we project seeing dead people. You know, I saw, you know, it's like, no, you didn't. I was abducted by, no, you weren't. Uh, they saw him. They're kicking it, eating fish sticks together. Like, are you kidding me? Like, there's, there he is in the body. He's touched. He, he eats. Uh, so people thought that they were tripping. And the text of Luke says, no, 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 they weren't tripping. And Luke, by the way, may I remind you of his vocation? He's a medical doctor. And he emphasizes these biological facts. Move from Luke 24, and let's go back to Luke chapter 2, if you will. And I got a verse there I want to show you. So we see... Jesus has a corporeal body. We, secondly, we see that he has, uh, he's, uh, ha has had a physical human body. Okay, He has a physical human body. Uh, what was from the beginning, in 1 John 1, 1, what was from the beginning we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The gospel isn't just a message about what God has done in Christ to save us. The gospel is a man who was touched, who was with them, who they, who they saw, who they held, who they hugged, who they adored. He had a physical human body. He experienced growing pains. I asked you to turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 40, so you can see this. Look at Luke 2, verse 40. 
the child continued to grow and became strong. In Luke 2, verse 52, it talks about him growing in wisdom and in stature. I mean, think about this, right? Like, he's God the Son of all eternity. Uh, God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit share one nature. So, so they're all together, you know, uh, uh, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omniscient. They know all things. Like, like God knows all things. You don't want to play guess which hand with God. He's going to get it every time. Uh, you know, guess what I'm thinking of? What number on a scale of, you know, 1 to 20? It's like, ah, every time, you know, every time. He just knows what you're thinking. He knows what's going to happen before it happens. You know, like, he, he knows all things. And yet, God the Son, who knows all things, and becoming a human, his human nature doesn't know all things. Think about that. Like, he grows in wisdom and stature. God wrote the Bible. The Bible is the product of God. And now you have God in the flesh who has to learn to read the book he wrote. Uh, anecdotally, there was a, a, a famous Greek professor at a seminary in Dallas, Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, Dr. Wallace. Uh, he's a, a renowned Greek scholar. Uh, so, something happened to him. He suffered a, a, a brain issue and he lost, he lost uh, memories and he lost certain cognitive faculties. He's a professor of Greek and he lost his Greek. He couldn't read Greek anymore. It just, it was gone. Uh, in seminary, he's sort of the standard textbook that we all were tortured by, by our professors. And so the thought, when, when we all heard this news, that Dr. Wallace was teaching himself Greek using his Greek textbook, you go, wow, that's crazy. And it's reminiscent of Christ, who is the eternal son, who grows up and learns his own book. He grows up. He has the limitations of being a human. He has cramps. He's colicky. He skins his knee. He goes through all of the things that we go through in a human body, albeit without sin. He experiences, he experiences physical weaknesses. We see in Matthew 4, 2, that he is hungry. We see that he is thirsty in, in John 4, 7. We see that he experiences fatigue in John 4, 6. He even experiences death, we read inside of Scripture. This isn't mere theology for theology's sake. I, I hope that in your hearts and minds you're connecting some things here uh, that the Spirit might move through the ministry of His Word to sanctify you. You know what it is to feel hunger. You know what it is to feel thirst, to, to, to have fatigue, to be tired, to want to give up, to want to tap out. Death, death, you've lost loved ones. He goes through all of this, and he goes through all of it for you, and, and, and for us, and for his people. So, so as we're studying these things, and you're learning more about him, reflect in your heart as I'm moving through the content, and say, wow, like, thank you, Jesus, that you experienced these things that we experienced, and you did it without sin, so that we would have a sacrifice that is perfect, and the means by which we can be set free from the punishment that we deserve. M moving, moving down the line here, we see Jesus' corporeal body. We also see his incorporeal soul. We see his intellect, his conscience, his will, his emotions. This is important to address. If we don't understand that Jesus is fully human, body and soul, you're going to run into problems. Uh, Jesus is not the son of God in a human body. You know, it's, it's not a wetsuit, you know, when you go to the beach and you're like, dang, it's cold, let me get a wetsuit. Uh, the Son of God didn't slap on a wetsuit. He's, he's not just flesh, he's also soul. He has a human soul. 
He took on not just the physical limits of humanity, but also the experiences of the soul of humanity. As Origen noted, and I quote, the whole man would not have been saved unless Jesus had taken upon himself the whole man. He's not just God in a skin suit. He's fully human. He has a human soul. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 38, Jesus spoke of his soul. And, and he said, my soul is deeply grieved. We, we read this as well in John eleven thirty three 33. In, in Luke 23, 46, we, we see him speaking of his spirit, his soul. In, into your hands as he dies, he says, I, co I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last, but he still lives because there's life after death because you are not your biological body. You are more than matter. And so is Christ. He has a human soul. He has a human mind. In his human mind, he experienced mental limitations. Uh, in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, we read an example of Jesus having limits in his knowledge. Specifically, he says he does not know the hour of his return and, and admits that the Father alone knows this. In his human nature, he has limitations. Uh, for uh, all of us in here have mental limitations, some, some more than others, not, not pointing any fingers, but uh, right, like your Savior had mental limitations. Your Savior had to learn stuff. We, we already saw in Luke chapter 2 that text where it talks about him increasing in knowledge. He, he receives a formal education. In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus reading the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue. From this, we can see that he was educated. Likewise, we can assume that he probably had a post-secondary education. Reading in the synagogue was limited to train rabbis and Pharisees. Jesus was called a rabbi, so he's trained, he's, he's educated. Point being, he had to learn. And so for all those who don't, you know, young folks in the room don't like going to school, or maybe you're going back to school to get a, a trade or certificate or something, you go, ah, I hate school. It's like, yeah, Jesus went to school too. Like, he, he can relate to you. He had to learn stuff. He had a formal education. He had human emotions. Many theologians will rightly note that Jesus had human emotions. They will often cite examples of his emotions. Uh, ang righteous anger, sadness, so on and so forth. While these are real emotions... These emotions are also not exclusive to humans. Um, God's, God has emotions. God can be angry. Uh, God can be happy. God can have joy. Now, yet in God, his emotions are immutable. In, in God, his, his, his passions aren't changing the way our human emotions are. He's, he's perfect in his emotions. He's immutable. He's impassable in his emotions. And yet in the humanity, in that human nature that the Son takes on, now he has mutable and passable emotions that he experiences. John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus prays, Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? John, John uh, 13, 21, he became troubled in his spirit. This word for troubled means an inward, uh, uh, an inward commotion. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the taking away of the calmness of the mind. It's being disturbed or disquieted or made restless. It can mean perplexity. It can mean uh, even, even fear. But Jesus undergoes these emotions, uh, albeit without sin. So he experiences anger, but you know, like Ephesians says, in your anger do not sin. There's a way to experience anger that isn't sinful. So he experiences all of these. This is what's so incredible in our prayer lives, that when you're talking to the Son, when you, when you close your eyes, incidentally, you don't have to close your eyes to pray, but when you pray and you say, Jesus, and you're talking to Jesus, you know that 
he relates to all of this. You have a, a sympathetic high priest who goes through everything that you go through. Jesus had a spiritual life as well as a human. This, uh, this always trips me out when I sit and I meditate on this. I mean, Jesus is God, right? Uh, but he, he's also human. And so in his humanity, he actually gives worship as a human. Uh, a lot of times, uh, critics of the Bible and cults will say, if Jesus is God, who's he praying to? I'm like, oh my gosh, you totally didn't win this argument because uh, Jesus is the Son and the Son is one with the Father and the Spirit. So that's how that works. Let's, let's, let's go back. But in his human nature, he prays, he worships, he fasts, he offers offering, he offers alms for the poor. Uh, Jesus experiences uh, a, a spirituality as well. So when you pray and you're talking to him about your spiritual life, I, I've grown cold. I keep turning back, you know, to, to the darkness. I, I, I said I wasn't going to do it, and now I'm doing it again, and what's going on? You're talking to a person who knows what this is all about. He experienced human trials and testing in trust of his father. In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus in the wilderness. Recall Luke 4, this is where he's tempted by the devil. Satan tempts Jesus to turn from his father and to listen to him. Uh, in Luke chapter 4, we, we read in Luke chapter 4, if you still have Luke open, go ahead, turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan. He was led around by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when it had ended, he became hungry. The passage goes on to show Satan uh, playing on Jesus' hunger and tempting him where it hurts. At each turn, Jesus quotes the book that he wrote with the Father and the Spirit. He quotes the Bible to duke it out with the devil. And the devil is rendered impotent against him and the power of the Word of God. Verse 13 of Luke 4, it says, When the devil had finished the temptation, he left him until an opportune time. The, de the devil was relentless in his pursuit and his warfare against the human Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus experiences spiritual warfare. Satan leaves for an opportune time. He returns and, and fights Jesus more. Jesus, the creator of the universe, is, is, is more powerful than him, experiences no limitation in his deity, but in his humanity, he can be weak, he can be vulnerable. And that wicked beast that the devil is looks for weaknesses and tries to find a way in. We read in the book of Genesis about how how the enemy uh, is, is, is crouched at the door, just waiting to get inside and to devour. The devil is real and he attacks, he's relentless. And yet, behold the Christ who has come, who overpowers him in his humanity, so that in your humanity, you can, by Christ in union with him, have access to this power. Jesus had a spiritual life. Jesus engaged in spiritual warfare. Jesus practiced spiritual disciplines regularly. We see that Jesus prayed. We see that Jesus, uh, uh, be on your outline, attended worship services. We see that he fellowshiped with others. We see that he read and memorized scripture. We see that he practiced solitude. We see that he was uh, committed to obeying the law of God. In addition to these disciplines, we see that he was serious about the mission of God. Jesus was an evangelist. He goes out and tells people who God is. 
He's a relentless evangelist and a discipler of people. He reaches out to serve people. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He was an evangelist. He was a servant. Uh, he also spoke against social injustice and whack politics. Jesus was a, a real spiritual man who did not divorce his faith from his politics or turn a blind eye to injustice in society. He spoke out. He offered something beyond the liberal social gospel. He offered something beyond the cold and callous conservatism that doesn't care about people and their distress. He offered a real gospel calling people on the right and the left to repentance and faith. Now let me switch gears and uh, let's move to conclude this message. We've covered a lot of ground, and I thank you for uh, being patient with, uh, with uh, a systematic sermon such as this. I want you to see three points from last week's sermon. Last week, we said, if Jesus was not God, then we lose this. If Jesus was not God, then we lose this. If Jesus was not God, then we lose this. And in today's message, I want to conclude by saying, if Jesus is not human, then we wouldn't have this. If Jesus was not human, then we would not have this. And in order to do this, I need you to turn in your Bibles. The last passage I'd like you to turn to is in the book of Philippians in the second chapter. So let's consider what we lose if Jesus is not human. If Jesus is not human, we have no, we have no revelation of God. Exemplar of, of holiness and obedience... Jesus is fully man, and he brings to us, because he's man and God, he brings to us this unique revelation that we would not have if he were not man. Because Jesus is human, humans can uniquely see the image of God. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 describes Christ as the image of God. Colossians 1.15 likewise says he is the image of the invisible God. Because Jesus is human, we uniquely have revelation of God. Because Jesus is human, we have revelation of our future resurrection bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read of the resurrection of Jesus' body, and it's said to be a prototype, the first fruits of what is to come. In him, we see what we will be. Third, through the humanity of Jesus, we have revealed his exaltation. I ask you to turn to Philippians chapter 2, and if you draw your eyes there to verse 8, we read in, in verse 8, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We, we have this revelation from God, the Son, who humbled himself and became a man. For through the humanity of Jesus, we have revealed God's original purposes for humans to rule over creation. I talked about our, the first man, the first woman, our father and our mother, and, and, and God loved them and put them into a loving creation and poured his love on them, and they rebelled against him. God created them and gave them dominion to rule over the earth, and they messed that up and came under the dominion of the darkness. Now you have in Christ... As a man, you have the second Adam who has come, a, a new father for humanity, a, a new way, and he's modeled what Adam did not do. He obeyed, he loved, he lived, he exercised dominion. Fifthly, through the humanity of Jesus, we understand the depth of God's love. Look at verse 6 again in Philippians 2. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. 
taking the form of a bondservant. Think about it. Think about what the Son of God gave up to become human. Unceasing worship in heaven. The, the eternal creator became created. I mean, some people won't even get off the couch, right, to, to change the channel for the, the person they love. Uh, the Son of God left heaven for us. He willingly became a servant for us. He was born into a poor family in a small, obscure village. Throughout his life, Jesus was poor. He was homeless. He washed people's feet. He was spit on. He was beaten and killed. His life was filled with rejection, loneliness, poverty, persecution, hunger, suffering, and finally a horrible death. And listen to his words on the cross. You got it coming. No, I'm, I'm, I'm finna get you when I get off this cross. No, on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. You see his humanity? You see his love? B on your outline. If Jesus is not human, we have no salvation. St. Gregory said it best when he said, the unassumed is unhealed. Again, the unassumed is unhealed. Christ saves us by becoming what we are. He heals us by taking our broken humanity into himself, by assuming it as his own. Jesus, from the inside, right? Uh, he's, he's human, so that from the inside out, he can save our humanity. He cannot save what he is not, right? He, 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 if he didn't have a human soul, then he can't save human souls. Jesus had to be a man to represent fallen humanity. The concept of Jesus being both fully God and fully man is hence a central tenet to the Christian faith. And it holds significance to us for several reasons. Uh, one, as a man, he can die in our place. God can't die by definition. God's eternal. You can't kill God. You, you know, you can't take God out, you know, which is why it's foolish to rebel against him, right? Uh, but as a man, he can die. And that's what we need. We need a holy man who will die in our place, and that's what he offers. But because he's not just a man and also God, then he can offer us forgiveness. Because who can forgive sin but God alone? As God, he can forgive sin. As man, he can die in our place. And so he represents fallen humanity. Number two, under Jesus, if he's not human, we don't have salvation. Jesus had to be human to be a substitutionary sacrifice for us. Uh, to be a substitute. Uh, you, you know, when you're, when you're a teenager, you love hearing that there's a substitute that day, right? Uh, yeah, we can get away with stuff, you know. Uh, the substitute standing in the place of, of the real deal. Christ dies on the cross of Calvary as a substitute for us to take the place of the real deal, you and I, and our sins. Third, if Jesus was not human, then his death was just an illusion. He had to be a real human to die. There is no blood of Jesus without the humanity of Jesus. In, in a moment, when I wrap this sermon up, we're going to come to the communion table, and I invite all to come. And you have elements on the table. You have little cups of juice that represent his blood and little, little crackers that represent his body. It represents what was real, namely the body and the blood of Christ. For because Jesus is human and divine, he can stand as a mediator between us and God. Moving down these points here, if Jesus is not human, we have no close and personal relationship with God. He uniquely brings us into union with God. Up close, the real deal, 
he brings you into union with God. He, he invites his disciples to call his father their father, our father who art in heaven. As a human, Jesus fulfills the law, freeing us from relating to God through the law. As a human, Jesus modeled loving obedience, providing us with an example to follow in relating to God. Through his humanity, Jesus understands our experience, and thus he operates sympathetically in the office of a high priest. When you go into his office, you know that the one in the office understands. You, you, you know, maybe you're at work or at school or whatever, you go into someone's office and you feel like, ah, they don't get it or they're above me or whatever. They don't understand what I'm going through. Not with Jesus. He is God with us. Remember the prophecy that we read. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. For the woman whose husband walked out on her and continues to struggle as she picks up the pieces, God is with you. For the elderly couple who can no longer care for themselves independently and must rely on the care of others, God is with you. For the young woman who watches all of her friends get married and wonders if a man will ever take interest in her, God is with you. For those struggling in despair and an addiction, trying to break the cycle, God is with you. For the person who is seeking truth, and wants to be free from empty religion and false spirituality, God is with you. As, as we are studying the Christ, we see all of these things to be the case. You are never alone. You have never been alone. You never will be alone. God is in Christ. God of eternity has stepped into this world and into our lives in Christ. If you come to him, you cry out to him. You're never alone. The Son of God took on a human nature, wrapping himself in flesh in order to let the world know God is with us. Two final points. Four, through his humanity, Jesus redeemed us, breaking our slavery to sin, our former master, and giving us new life so that we can have a close personal relationship with God and, and call on him as our new master. A master is one you obey. Uh, we all in life have masters. We have things that we bow down to, things that we obey. In salvation, God takes ownership over us. The scriptures say you were bought with a price. We, we belong to him. He's our master. Fifth and final point, through his humanity, Jesus adopts us as sons, and has, sons of his father and has made us heirs of God. This is something we studied in the month of November. We did a series on the doctrine of adoption. And thinking about how God has rescued us and made us sons of his family. It's time for us to come to the communion table. And the table reminds us of family. All families have tables. Uh, you have a place where the family gathers to, to meet, to talk, to eat. And so we come to the communion table and we're reminded that in, in the work of the son, we've been reconciled to his father. And, and again, I would be remiss not to say it now as it has been woven through the whole sermon. Come to him. Be set free. Be forgiven. Cry out to him. Your sins are many. His mercies are more than many. They're unending. Let's pray and we'll uh, sing and we'll come to the communion table and celebrate the one who is holy man and holy God. Would you bow your heads and hearts? God, we thank you for the reality of the incarnation of the eternal Son fully God and fully man. And Lord, I pray that as we're digging into the systematic theology of this this month, uh, that you would be taking us deep. 
Um, Lord, not just in information, but in transformation. As we reflect on these truths, may your Spirit apply them to our lives. In our brokenness, in our sin, in our wandering, in uh, bad ideas that we take on, and bad attitudes, and uh, relationships that, that aren't right. Lord, that through the study of your Word, and through a deeper understanding of your Son, who He is, what He is, uh, Lord, that you would be transforming us, empowering us. Lord, as we come to the communion table, we pray that you would draw us now in repentance and faith, and that above all, you would be honored as we worship you in song and celebration of the table. In Christ's name, amen.